U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale and I am joined by the one, the two, the third, yeah, the, uh, the EXO, Christoph. Hey, that's me. Hey, everybody. It is you. So we're back in the American Revolution. We had just finished covering the naval aspect of the European theater. So today we're going to move on to the West Indies and the Gulf Coast. So if you are ready to get underway, we're going to get underway. Let's do it to it. All right. So there was a lot of action in the West Indies, actually, especially in the Lesser Antilles. Even though France had lost St. Lucia early in the war, its navy really dominated the West Indies. They captured uh, Dominica. Grenada, St. Vincent, Montserrat, Tobongo, St. Kitts, and the Turks and Cacos between 1778 and 1782. Wow, that's quite a lot. The Dutch possessions in the West Indies and South America were captured by Britain, but then France was like, nope, we're taking that too. And hey, Dutch, it's back in your hands now. Look at us. We're your friends. How, how magnanimous of the French. Yes. So at the Battle of the Saints in April of, in 1782, there was a victory from, by a fleet commanded by a guy named Rodney over a French fleet, the French Admiral de Grasse. And this really hurt the French's hope and Spain's hope to take Jamaica and the rest of the colonies from the British. Now, in the Gulf Coast, Count Bernardo de Galvez, who was the Spanish governor of Louisiana, he quickly kicked out the British from their outposts on the lower Mississippi River. This was in 1779. This was Battle of Manchuk and Baton Rouge in the British West Florida. Galvez then captures Mobile in 1780 and then captures the British Citadel and the capital of Pensacola in 1781. Then in 1782, Galvez then captures the British naval base at New Providence in the Bahamas. This was later given to Spain after the Treaty of Paris was signed. You know, this is interesting because there's a lot of nationalities that you're mentioning about different either islands in the Caribbean or states even that don't line up with what my understanding was, like a Spanish governor of Louisiana and English possession of West Florida. That's that's interesting. Or even uh, I know the English have had Jamaica for a while, and but the 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 name of it itself is a Spanish term. So I imagine the Spanish had it at some point. So this is, this is all in flux, and it's very interesting to me. Yeah, the Spanish had Louisiana before the French had it, and then it was sold to America. Right. That's nuts. But you're, you're right about the, the Spanish name and English possession, because the English came back, grabbed it not too long after that. Right. <laughs> so Galvez's action led to the Spanish acquisition of the east and west Florida in a peace settlement. 
And this denied the British the opportunity of encircling all the American forces that were in the South. And this kept open a vital conduit for supplying the Americans. The Continental Congress cited Galvez in 1785 for his aid during the revolution. And George Washington put him in the parade and sat him at his right-hand side. Wow, that's a big deal. This was the first July 4th parade. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a huge honor. Absolutely. You know, I'm surprised you don't see more, like, streets called Galvez. And maybe you do in the Florida area or even Louisiana. But, I mean, I see Lafayette's a lot. Washington, clearly, but not a lot of Galvez. Well, you should petition Congress, say we need more Galvez in our life. I, maybe I will. And then it'll be thanks to this podcast. Maybe. You inspired a humongous letter writing campaign. And your street, Captain, will be Galvez. Oh, don't, don't. Yeah, you don't tease me. Change all your stationery. Yeah, it's a, it's a to-do. I don't know. I don't care about that. Just don't tease me. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Next. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll take that off the air. <laughs> so Central America is also subject to the conflict between Britain and Spain. Because when British sought to expand its informal trading influence beyond, you know, the coastal logging and fishing communities that was in present-day Belize, Honduras, and Nicaragua, there were expeditions sent against San Fernando de Oma in 1779 and San Juan in 1780. And these were temporary successes. They did get abandoned, though, because people started dying of disease. The English were very susceptible to the tropical diseases. Uh, they may still be. Maybe. I had heard a story about a, a British merchant that had had several passages, and this is contemporary, through the Panama Canal, and many of his other crew members would get sick with malaria, but he never seemed to be affected, and they asked him what his secret was, and he simply said, gin. And I went, oh, okay, the ultimate mosquito repeller. Just uh, apply copious amounts of gin into your mouth, and then... I think you'll exude it from your pores. Oh, by the way, this is not a medical podcast. Do not take any medical advice from us. This is a story, an anecdote that I found interesting, and maybe you will. You might have been a smoker as well because uh, I hear nicotine and cigarette smoke keeps them away as well. Maybe so. But uh, again, everybody during this time was a smoker anyway, but they still died of malaria. So, well, anyway, yeah. Uh, the Spanish colonial leaders also could not completely eliminate the British influence along the uh, Mosquito Coast, except for the French territory of Tobago. Sovereignty in the West Indies pretty much returned to the way it was before the war when the peace was signed in 1783. Well, that seems fair, as, as far well, as that goes. Yeah. Then American influence went down there, and it just tore everybody up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. They say that um, before Houston got its 
uh, Major League Baseball expansion, I believe it was in the 50s, that um, Havana was actually going to get one because it was a popular tourist destination back then. And they thought it would be very exciting to have a, a foreign uh, city in, integrated into the league. But then, as you know, there was a revolution there and Fidel Castro kind of shut everything down. And so they decided to pivot to Houston. And so that's why Houston has a major league baseball team. Or that's when they got it when they did. So it was almost the Castro Astros? Uh, more like probably the Havana Cigar Makers. I don't know what they would have called themselves, but this was pre-Castro. And then Castro came in and ruined Havana's chances for getting a major league expansion team, as he does. Well, I mean, Canada's still got a team, so we're still international. That's true. They had two. I don't know what's up with Montreal. No offense, Montreal. So let's uh, move into a couple of battles that the U.S. was part of. We're going to talk about the Raid of Nassau. This was between the United Colonies and the Kingdom of Great Britain. So the Raid of Nassau. I think it's Nassau. I've watched a lot of game shows. And that was a prize. You can go to their beach at the Nassau Bay Hilton. So anyway, just throwing that out there. The Raid of Nassau, Nassau happened between March 3rd and 4th of 1776. And this was a naval amphibious assault against the British port there. So a little bit of background to this battle. When the war broke out, Lord Dunmore, who was the British provisional governor of the colony of Virginia, and his forces removed Virginia's store of provisional arms and gunpowder to the island of New Providence in the crown colony of the Bahamas to keep it out of, you know, rebel hands. Mont Montfort Brown, who was the Bahamian governor, was told by General Thomas Gage in August that the rebel colonists might attempt to seize the supplies, even though there was a desperate shortage of gunpowder that the uh, Continental Army had to them. They did lead the Second Congressional Congress to organize a naval expedition. They had the intent on seizing the military supplies at Nassau. So while the orders issued by the Congress to Eski Hopkins, the fleet captain that they told to lead the expedition, their instructions only included patrolling and raiding British naval targets on the Virginia and Caroline coastline. He received secret orders in a secret naval meeting from the Congress Naval Committee. These instructions he issued to his fleet captains before sailing from Cape Penelope, which is in Delaware, on February 1776. And this included instructions to rendezvous at Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas. So this fleet consisted of the Alfred, the Hornet, the Wasp, the Fly, the Andrew 
Doria, the Cabot, the Providence, and the Columbus. In addition to the the sailors aboard, it also had 200 Marines under the command of a guy named Samuel Nicholas. And even though, you know, they had a couple hurricanes to to deal with, they were able to stick together for two days. That's when Flying Hornet got separated. Hornet had to turn around for repairs, but Fly did eventually catch up with the fleet at Nassau. And unfortunately, that was after the attack had already happened. Oh. So they missed everything. That's unfortunate. That's amazing. This None of these names sound familiar. This expedition is completely new to my ears. And it's so fascinating because there were so many different elements of the revolution. Like taking gunpowder and arms from Virginia to the Bahamas, that's a pretty seemingly extreme move, especially in this century. Uh, in the 1700s, moving that kind of stuff, that distance wasn't trivial. And they have an expedition to go get it. This is incredible. And I, it doesn't make the history books for whatever reason, at least as far as the ones I've read in, uh, in my school. But anyway, continue. I'm fascinated. Now, Hopkins did not let the loss of these two ships stop him. He had some intelligence that said a lot of the British fleet was in port because of the uh, storms. So Brown, he is uh, the English guy. He received intelligence report in late February that a rebel fleet was assembling off the Delaware coast, but he took no actions to prepare for defense. He's like, they're just, they're just rebels. They can't, they don't know how to do this stuff. Uh, New Providence's harbor had two primary defenses. Fort Nassau and Fort Montagu. Fort Nassau was located in Nassau, but it was not very well equipped to defend the port against an amphibious attack. It did have walls, but they were not strong enough to support, you know, firing all of its cannons. And they had 46 of them. So the wall couldn't support their own cannons? Is that what you're saying? When they were all being fired at the same time. Yeah, they should have tested that out. They should have built it stronger. Yeah, definitely. So because of this, Fort Montague had been constructed in 1742 on the eastern end of the harbor, right there in front of its entrance. When this raid happened, it had 17 cannons. But here's where they screwed up. Most of the gunpowder and shot was at Nassau. Fort Nassau. (laughs) Yeah. So the American fleet arrives at Abasco Island on March 1st, 1776, and they capture two sloops owned by loyalists. So loyalists meaning? Loyal to the crowd. But were they colonial also? Like, were they American per se? Yes. But just, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, American loyalists. They were American loyalists. They were loyal to the crown. Got it. Uh, So they captured these two sloops and pressed them into service as pilots. Now, I I need to pause for a second because there's something that's confusing to me. Maybe you can help clear it up. The date you stated, March 1st, 1776, is clearly before the Declaration of Independence was, uh, was created and signed, but clearly after the Boston Tea Party of 1773. So this period between those two let's say, uh, markers in time, was it just increasing 
um, not maybe outright attacks, but maybe antagonism by the colonists, uh, the colonists rather, to the crown? Or what, what was the, the temperament, I guess, of the situation? Well, the war started in 1775. Yes, it did. So this is during the war. Okay. Okay, I'm going to drink coffee and then have my breath wake up because <laughs> I knew that and I was missing that important. Uh, yes, okay. Back to the coffee and then you may continue with your discussion. Your timeline is now correct. How did I miss the start of the war? That's a pretty important point in time. Uh, it's okay. Thanks, man. I, I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure somebody else had that question too. Uh, 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 yes. And I'm glad you stated that because that's precisely why I asked it. I'm still going to drink coffee, though. Go ahead. <laughs> drink your coffee. Uh, let's see. A guy named George Dorsett, who was a local ship's captain, did get away from the Abaco Island. And he did alert Brown to the presence of the American fleet. So now he knows that, uh, oh, crap, they're here. And I didn't prepare anything. So the Americans, they transfer a landing force to the captured sloops and to Providence the next day on March 2nd. And they formulated plans for a assault. The plan was that while the main fleet held back, the three ships carrying the landing force were to enter the port at daybreak the next day and gain control of the town before any alarm could be raised. Now, this decision to land at daybreak turned out to be a mistake because as soon as the three ships were spotted in the morning light, the alarm was raised. And this woke up Brown, and he was like, oh, okay, guys, um, fire four guns from Fort Nassau to alert our militias. Unfortunately for him, two of the guns came off their mounts when they were fired and disabled them. Ooh. But that's okay. Remember, they had 46 guns. Yeah, but if 50% of the first shot gets dismounted, that's not a good sign. So at uh, 0700, he held a discussion with uh, one of his counselors, a guy named Samuel Gambier. And he, they were discussing whether the gunpowder should be removed from the islands on the Mississippi packet, which was a fast ship that was docked in the harbor. They decided not to, but he did order 30 mostly unarmed militiamen to occupy Fort Montague before, you know, going back to his house because he wanted to quote, make himself a little decent. <laughs> This is the era of uh, refinery. Makes sense. Yeah. So back out with the uh, fleet, they heard the guns go off. And then they realized that the element of surprise was lost and they aborted their assault. The three boats rejoined the fleet in Hanover Sound, which is around six nautical miles east of Nassau. There... At that point in time, Hopkins held a council and they developed a new plan of attack. Uh, John Paul Jones is there. He is Hopkins' lieutenant. John Paul Jones suggested a new landing point and then said, hey, I should lead the attack. But 
Jones was unfamiliar with the local waters and a lot of the other captains were, were, uh, familiar with them. Yeah. That makes a big difference. Yeah. So it's more likely that the landing force was led by the Cabot's Lieutenant and also a guy named Thomas Weaver because they were familiar with the area. So they enlarged the landing force by adding 50 more sailors. And then the three ships with the wasp who was supposed to offer additional covering support. They went to a point south and east of Fort Montegao where they made a unopposed beach landing somewhere between 12 and 1400. This was the first landing of what eventually became the United States Marine Corps. No kidding. That's awesome. And the United States Marine Corps are still Naval Marines. It's important to clarify. Yes. <laughs> uh, English Lieutenant named Burke, the, he leads a detachment out from Fort Montegao to investigate the rebel landing. And when he saw that he was severely outnumbered, he opted to send a white flag and a contingent of men to determine the attention of these at this point at around 250 men. Whoa. Uh, he learned that their objective was to seize the powder and military stores. While this meeting was happening, Brown arrives at Fort Montagu with another 80 militiamen of his own. And once he hears about the size of the landing force, he ordered three of the fort's guns fired and then withdraws almost everybody back to Nassau. Wow. He went back to the governor's house and most of the militiamen just went home. The militiamen were like, we're not being paid enough for this. That is not what I expected at all. That is, it's like, hey, uh, yeah, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go home. I suppose, again, maybe to get decent, who knows? The weather's nice enough. Maybe just enjoy a, a, a brisk evening with a book or a loved one. Who knows? Right. Well, Brown then sends Burke out again to talk with the American forces for a second time. This was to, quote, wait on the commanding officer of the enemy to know his errand and on what account he had landed his troops. Now, the Americans, on the other hand, when they heard the guns fire, they were like, uh, what's going on? Then, you know, nothing else happened. They were like, okay, let's go. And they occupied the fort. He was uh, talking with his other officers about what they're going to do next when Burke arrives. And they again told Burke that they had arrived to take the powder and weapons. And they were prepared to attack the town. So Burke brings this news back to Brown, you know, at the governor's mansion, because he's got a command in luxury, I guess. Of course. That's and, the benefit of being governor. And this was around 1600. Uh, but instead of advancing uh, further into Nassau, Nicholas and his 250 men remained at the fort for the night. Brown, he holds a council that evening, a quote-unquote war council, and they made a decision to attempt to remove the gunpowder. 
at uh, midnight, 162 of 200 barrels of gunpowder were loaded onto the Mississippi packet ship, the HMS St. John. And at 0200, they got underway out of the harbor. Then they were setting a course for St. Augustine. This was possible because Hopkins did not post a ship to guard the harbor's entrance channels. He left his fleet anchored in Hanover Sound instead. The uh, Marines and 50 sailors, they captured and occupied Nassau without any resistance the next morning. After Hopkins, you know, distributed leaflets around the town. So that means that they were met en route by committee of the town's leaders who just handed over the keys to the city. They're like, here you go. Here's the keys. Probably best. So the Americans stayed there for about two weeks, loading as much weaponry as they could fit into their ships and the 38 remaining casts of gunpowder. He also pressed into service a local sloop, the Endeavor, to carry some of the materiel. Brown, he made a complaint. He said that the uh, American officers consumed most of his liquor stores during this occupation. (laughs) Well, yeah. Navy and Marines, right? I mean... No. uh, American and, and British. Yeah, I guess... Okay, I'm with you. Uh, He also wrote that he was taken in chains like a, quote, felon to the gallows when he was arrested and taken to the Alfred. So while they were there sitting at Nassau, the fly finally arrives. And their captain reported that uh, she and the Hornet had fouled their riggings together and that Hornet suffered a lot of damage because of this. So now he knows what happened to those two boats. At least the fly came back, you know? It could have been just a mystery for for the captain or the admiral so that's that's something well he wasn't too worried about it he he went on without him so on march 17th the fleet sails for the block island channel off of newport rhode island and he they had brown and other uh officials as prisoners this voyage was uneventful until the fleet reached the waters of long island where they encounter the HMS Hawk on April 4th. They capture her, and the next day they they capture the Bolton, which was laden with stores that included more armaments and powder. Nice. They did meet a, a little bit of resistance on April 6th because they encountered the HMS Glasgow, which was a sixth rate ship. In the ensuing battle, the since she was outnumbered, she decided she was going to make a run for it, and she did manage to escape capture. And she severely damaged the Cabot in, pro, in the process, wounding her captain. The captain was Hopkins' son, John Burroughs Hopkins, and 11 others were killed or wounded. The fleet then sails into the harbor at New London in Connecticut on April 8th. So after this, Brown was eventually exchanged for a American general, a guy named William Alexander, and was then criticized badly for his handling of the entire affair. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to see that not a lot has changed from uh, then to now. Yeah. 
uh, Nassau still remained relatively poorly defended and was again under threat by the Americans in January of 1778. Uh, it was then seized by Spanish forces in 1782 and then given back to the British after the war. Uh, Hopkins was initially lauded for his success at Nassau, but the failure to capture the Glasgow and crew complaints about some of the captains led to a variety of investigations and court-martials. Because of these, the Providence's captain was relieved of his command, and it was given to Jones. Because Jones had actually performed well in the Glasgow encounter. You know, even though he had a reduced crew because of disease. After that, he received a captain's commission in the Continental Navy. Hopkins was also criticized for how he distributed the spoils and of his failure to follow his orders to patrol the Virginia shore. And this resulted in his censure by the Continental Congress. After a couple of more missteps and accusations, he was eventually forced out of the Navy in 1778. Now, there have been two ships in the United States Navy that hold the name Nassau. The USS Nassau, LHA-4, an amphibious assault ship. This one was named specifically for this battle. And the USS Nassau CVE-16 was named for the Nassau Sound, which is the body of water off the coast of Florida near Jacksonville. So that's the raid. That's pretty interesting. I mean, like I said earlier, not something most people hear about. I, I assume if you're a Marine, you probably hear a lot about it since it's the first official landing of them. Um, but yeah. The, yeah, like, like the first amphibious landing. Right. That's pretty important. Very cool. Uh, I, I did note there were a couple of guys that had uh, two first names instead of a first and last name. I believe it was William Alexander and Samuel Nicholas. I'm seeing a pattern. Mm. So we'll see uh, if this continues as we continue through the American Revolution, the two first name folks. Maybe it's not important, but hey, I find weird things interesting. <laughs> All right, we're going to talk about one more battle. This is the Battle of Barbados. This happened in March of 1778. The, there was, uh, the captain on the U.S. side was a guy named Nicholas Biddle. He was in command of the 36-gun Randolph when uh, this happened. He received orders from John Rutledge to break the enemy blockade of Charleston, South Carolina. And so a large number of merchantmen had been trapped there so after breaking the blockade his orders were to sail south into the south atlantic he did have four other armed ships with him in this mission the general montour the notre dame the fair american and the poly but after sailing out to meet the british off of charleston on february 14th the enemy was nowhere that he could see so the American fleet headed for the West Indies, where Biddle would raid commerce. On February 16th, the fleet burned a British ship, which had been dismasted by a privateer on March 4th. Yeah. And then on March 4th, the Polly captured a small schooner 
which was added to the fleet as a tender. What does that mean, a tender? It's, uh, it's where they would keep their supplies. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, that's all it would be, was be a supply ship. Well, that's cool. I guess it frees up a lot of room in the other ships. Yeah. And that's where they could put all their loot. And I imagine they could withdraw that ship from the battle so th their loot doesn't get taken. So all the other ships can do the fighting, and that ship can kind of be at a safe distance, maybe? Yeah, a tender would not normally take part in a fight. Makes sense. Huh, okay. Uh, sorry, continue. No, you're good. Uh, three days after that, on March 7th, at around 1730, the Americans are sailing off the eastern coast of Barbados when a lookout spots a big old ship to the windward side. Captain Biddle, he assumes that it was a man of war. And so he directed most of his ships to keep going while he stayed behind to engage with his boat and the 18-gun ship, the General Moulter. When they uh, figure out what the ship is, it turns out to be the 64-gun HMS Yarmouth. This was under the command of Captain Nicholas Vincent. It's another two-first-name guy. <laughs> so the next few hours is just maneuvering, trying to get a favorable position. Okay. And the battle begins at around 2100 when the Americans raise their colors and open fire on the Yarmouth with a broadside. Wait a minute. So when you say raise their colors, I assume that's their flag, correct? Yep. Why wasn't it raised prior to the engagement? Is that not something that usually happens until a battle ensues? Well, they didn't want to give away who they were. Okay. Well, I can see that, but the positioning implied something different. So they're... Was it the Americans that were trying to get position on the men of war? Or were they yeah. both trying to get position on each other? And then they revealed themselves. Oh, by the way, we're American. We're here to uh, attack you. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Okay, cool. It's clear now. The British, they respond with their own broadside. And this rages for 20 minutes. Captain Biddle is wounded early in the uh, battle. But he continues to fight for a couple minutes the uh, shots that wounded him are thought to have come from the general Moulter, which accidentally struck the randolph friendly fire not good nope so it seems that the americans are about to win the battle when a spark entered the randolph's powder magazine and you know fire and powder this caused a very large explosion, and it completely destroyed the frigate in an instant. Wow. The Randolph sank with a loss of 301 men. That is a lot of guys. Uh, five men survived, including the captain, who died 10 days later of his wounds. Wow. According to Captain Hall, who was the commander of the Notre Dame, Biddle and his guys heavily damaged the Armouth within the first 12 to 15 minutes of the battle. And the American ships were still mostly undamaged. The Armouth lost her bow sprite and her topmasts, and a portion fell down and damaged the 
poop deck. There was another portion of the top mess fall that fell into the top gallant sails and then onto the cap. Five British sailors were killed, another 12 were wounded. So after the Randolph went down, Captain Vincent did try to go after the other American ships, but they went all different ways. They uh, dispersed very quickly in different directions. Smart. And because of the damage to the Armoth sails, this also gave, you know, the advantage to the Americans to get away. The uh, four remaining Americans that had survived the sinking, they were actually, uh, they were actually uh, floating for five days before they were picked up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, the Armoth came across them again on March 12th while she was chasing another ship. That's, that's insane. Yeah, they found them clinging to some wreckage, and they had survived by sucking rainwater out of a blanket. That is impressive. You do what you got to do to survive. Oh, absolutely, but I... Wow. Uh, the death of Captain Biddle was considered a severe blow to the Continental Navy. He was well-respected, and he was regarded as a professional sailor and a strong leader. Now, there was a poem written about him about his death if you were interested in hearing that yes i would be all right i am not sure who wrote this it does not uh they don't i don't have a uh writer's credit for this but it goes as so what distant thunders rend the skies what clouds of smoke in volumes rise what means this dreadful roar is from his base Vestuvius throne, is sky-top Atlas tumbled down, or Etna's self no more. Shock after shock torments my ear, and lo, two hostile ships appear. Red lightings round them glow. The Armoth boasts of sixty-four, the Randolph thirty-two, no more, and she will fight this foe. The Randolph soon on Stigan streams, shall coast along the land of dreams, the islands of the dead. But fate that parts them on the deep shall save the Briton still to weep. His ancient honors fled. Say who commands that dismal blaze, where yonder starry streamer plays, does Mars and Jove engage. Tis Biddle's wing whose angry fires, Biddle whose bosom Jove inspires, with more than mortal rage. Tremendous flash and hark the ball, drives through old Yarmouth, flames and all. Her bravest sons expire, did Mars himself approach so nigh, even Mars without disgrace might fly, that Randolph's fiercer fire. The Briton views his mangled crew, and shall we strike to thirty-two, said Hector stained with gore, shall Britain's flag to those descend. Rise in the glorious conflict end. Britons, I ask no more. He spoke, they charged their cannon round. Again the vaulted heavens resound. The Randolph bore it all, then fixed her pointed cannons true. Away the unwieldy vengeance flew. Britain, the warriors fall. The Yarmouth saw with dire dismay. Her wounded hull, shrouds shot away. Her boldest heroes dead. She saw amidst her floating sling, the conquering Randolph, Stamma the main. She saw, she turned, and fled. 
that our blessed chef, she had been thine. Dear Biddle had the powers divine. Then kind as thou wert brave, but fate, who's doomed thee to expire, prepared an arrow tipped with fire and marked a watery grave. And in that hour when conquest came, winged at his ship a pointed flame, that not even he could shun, the conquest ceased, the Yarmouth fled, the bursting Randolph ruin spread, and lost what honor won. That was really cool. I mean, it's been a while since I've heard um, poetry with such, I don't know, distinct vocabulary or lyrics. That was that was nice. That is a classic poem from, you know, the 18th century. Yes. It reminds me of when I read letters from the 14-year-old fighters of the U.S. Civil War and how mu <laughs> they're so much more eloquent than I am. I'm like, huh, should really up my vocabulary game. <laughs> yeah, but maybe I don't think anybody nowadays would be able to understand you. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah, I should I should blend in and not... You uh... should blend in, yes. <laughs> What's with the big words, weirdo? <laughs> what's the big? What's with the big weird words? So that's the battle off Barbados. Fascinating. I'm loving uh, re the the recounting of these battles just to kind of get a a flavor for what what the colonists had to do to to fight for their independence. It's not just uh, a couple of land battles as as we so often hear about, but there's, there's a lot more going on. Yeah. So we're going to end it there. So we're going to honor one of our fallen angels with our partnership with HeroCards.us. So today we're going to honor a army officer, a woman named Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Elizabeth Leonard. She was from Warwick, New York. She served in the U.S. Army, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division. She received the Bronze Star Medal three times, the Meritorious Service Medal two times, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, the Army Commendation Medal three times, and a Purple Heart. Her date of sacrifice was June 8, 2013, killed in action in Shinara, Tika Province, Afghanistan. She was 39 years old. Jamie Leonard grew up in Warwick, New York, a small historic town in the countryside, which is an hour's drive from New York City. She was born on January 29, 1974, the first child of Robert Leonard Jr. and P Patricia Leonard. At a young age, Jamie dreamed of joining the military. When she and her younger sister, Liz, attended a middle school basketball camp at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Jamie knew it was the ultimate place for her to realize her dream. Getting into the prestigious West Point Academy would not be easy. The Army's preeminent leadership development institution and the oldest military academy accepts only the very best of the best in the nation. Knowing the rigorous academic, physical, and character standards, Jamie put her focus on meeting those standards while attending Warwick Valley High School in her hometown and graduated in 1992. Leonard's academic performance, leadership, and her test scores made her one of the three finalists from New York State 
competing for a coveted appointment to West Point. She was passed over for another candidate who played football for Army. Disappointed but undeterred, Leonard enrolled at Marion Military Institution in Alabama on a merit-based scholarship, applying again to West Point in the following year. She was accepted to join the Academy's thin grain line of cadets, realizing her childhood dream. Leonard graduated with West Point's class of 1997 and was commissioned as a military intelligence officer in the United States Army. Because of her performance at the Academy, Leonard was selected to receive a coveted slot in the Joint Chiefs of Staff's Office of the Secretary of Defense Intern Program. She served under Rear Admiral John F. Kirby at the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. Earning the rank of Major, Jamie Leonard's military career would see her deploy to Bosnia in 1999, to Iraq in 2005, and to Afghanistan in 2011. Between deployments, she earned her master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University in 2007. In January of 2013, Major Leonard deployed a second time to Afghanistan with the 10th Mountain Division as part of Operation Enduring Freedom. The 10th is a light infantry division based out of Fort Drum, New York. And according to the U.S. Army Center of Military History, the 10th Mountain Division was the most deployed division during the global war on terror in the 1990s. Major Leonard was stationed in Shaharna, which is the capital of Paktika province, Afghanistan, in her capacity as a military intelligence officer. Part of the 10th Mountain Division's mission was to train and support the allied Afghan National Army to defend itself against the enemy, the Taliban. On June 8th of 2013, a man in a Afghan National Army uniform picked up a weapon and shot and killed Major Leonard, Lieutenant Colonel Todd Clark, and Joseph Morabito, who was a civilian who worked alongside Leonard and Clark as a law enforcement trainer. Rear Admiral Kirby, who had worked with Major Leonard during her internship at the Pentagon, wrote to the Warwick Advertiser, quote, She laughed a lot, smiled a lot, hugged a lot. That big, toothy, girl-next-door face of hers fairly beamed when she was happy. And she always seemed to be happy. The last time I saw her was in Afghanistan at some base somewhere. Hey, sir, she yelled. Embrace the suck yet? Embrace the suck. That's the little saying we used to share. She taught it to me when we worked together on the joint staff. Embrace the suck. is the trooper's way of not merely accepting these hardships, but relishing them turning them into a point of pride. It's army perlance for, yeah, it's tough, but we're tougher. Major Jamie Elizabeth Leonard was posthumously promoted to the rank of lieutenant colonel. She was laid to rest with her fellow soldiers on June 20th, 2013, with full military honors at the West Point Post Cemetery, Section 34, Row A, Site 006. Jamie Leonard had once submitted a piece of her hometown newspaper, the Warwick Advertiser, encouraging her community to consider their sense of citizenship and to find the true meaning of Memorial Day. Quote, Remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice for their country in war, she wrote, but also honor others who sacrifice in other ways to make this country great. Law enforcement, firefighters, teachers, volunteers, etc., Please honor them indeed, and not just giving thanks, parades, or planting flowers or flags on graves. 
take measure of what you have done for your country and ask yourself if you could do more. So Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Elizabeth Leonard, we thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph, take us out. You got it, Dale. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for listening to us. Um, it really means a lot that there are people out there that are listening to the stories that are being told in this podcast. Uh, if you want to contact us, like if you have a question or uh, just want to say, hey, Dale, you're a great storyteller, uh, please email us at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, alternatively, you may find us on X slash Twitter, whichever you prefer to call it, at USN History Pod. Uh, we are also on Discord. We have a Discord server, and we're ready to engage with you. So come on in. You can find the link in the show notes. Um, don't forget that we're also on YouTube. You can catch us there or your favorite podcasting app. And wherever you listen, please feel free to rate us and preferably highly, but, you know, fo follow your instinct, your heart. Let us know how you actually feel about what we're doing here. So uh, I think that's everything. Uh, Dale, what else you got? Well, we'll see you guys for the next one. Uh, we want to wish you a fair winds the following seas. Bye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank you.